Welcome to Rebels Deconstructed Podcast. Listen to people in tech sharing their journey through criticism, failure, and staying true to their vision to make an impact. Pour yourself a drink and get inspired. I'm Andrea, your host for today, in conversation with Tom, head of product design at Rebeldot. Welcome, Tom. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Tom, um, I just realized we've been working together for almost two years now, but still never got a chance to get a full view of your background story, becoming a designer and leading design teams. What's your story? I think that my background pretty much starts in my childhood. So uh, my mom worked in a furniture construction company. And uh, of course, I roamed around there all the time. And um, essentially, they were showing me, okay, so if you connect this to this, then you will have the specific item, which then later on goes on to be uh, to be built within a larger item, and all the pieces add up to build something that people will actually use. So uh, it, it's always been pretty interesting for me to see, okay, how do things work? And this is, I think that this is one of the main qualities that I try to highlight in my work as well. Uh, I try to be as curious as possible because. Essentially, curiosity drives you towards finding solutions, making things better, or in some instances, even improving your life as a whole. Overall, as for my design career, I think I started it back, well, realistically, in high school. Uh, we had a high school newspaper, so I did, I did some editing there. And I essentially started working on, um, on freelance gigs. Imagine this, you're in high school, <laughs> all your friends are living on pocket money, and you're making more money than they are. It's not a lot of money, but it's it's cool that you go you go to school, so, and they're like, so did you get that from parents? Nah, I, I made it. Uh, so I started doing small freelance gigs that weren't really related to products or user experience so or things like this. So you were the high school classroom snack provider. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And... and Let's not forget the way things worked in high school. Yo, bro, can I, can I get a bite of your sandwich? Yeah, you, you didn't really have a sandwich after that. So from that point on, I started working mostly on UI design. This was, oh, seem, seems like an eternity ago. And um, from, from that point, slowly transitions to UX when I, I figured out that, okay, making things pretty is cool, but... Uh, why, why not go back to mom's factory and build things that are both cool, but also bring value. So, uh, I started working on, um, on different platforms where essentially I could make a contribution. I could make small improvements that could be reflected one way or another. And from that point on, things pretty much snow, things pretty much snowballed. I had the chance of working with marketers focused on marketers focused on different campaigns. I had the chance of uh, being um, involved in building landing pages and different uh, requirements for marketing campaigns that were measured. And I think that that was the biggest turning point in my career because when when I started working with Zach. Uh, Zach, Zach is a marketer in the US. He was very, very focused on KPIs. So he was, okay, we're building this for a purpose. We're, we're doing this for something. We're not just doing it, okay, 
uh, let it be done. We're doing this to collect lead, we're, leads. We're doing this to attract customers. We're doing this to drive people through funnels. And all of these things added up. And being driven by KPIs is essentially what design is all about. So you're designing for a purpose. And from that point on, went on to working as a consultant for a Swiss company and working uh, on a product for an American company and being here at Rebel Dot. That's great. It's a pretty interesting story. I never, never, ever even thought of making a connection with your mother's job and your career as a designer. Um, and I, I, I really like what you said about curiosity and being a main driver for everything that you have built so far. And knowing you, I know this still remains something that's really particular to you. Um, and now I'm now you made me curious, and I, I was just wondering if maybe were your first clients industry specific or niche on any industries. I think my first client, well, it really depends what you mean by first clients. I mean the UX ones for whom you had to build real complex systems. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and from that perspective, if we go back to the first clients, I wouldn't really say complex systems because most of them wanted something that uh, was very, very visual, but still brought some value. So everything had a primary purpose. What I try to do is get as involved as possible in order to satisfy that primary criteria and try to put a little bit on top of it in order to get a better gain. And this essentially resulted in more attention. So when your users are happy, then your business is thriving. And this is something that should be a driving force for all businesses. Which brings me to my next question. My favorite one, actually. Um, what has been your biggest challenge working with founders wanting to build digital products. I know the challenge might have changed over the years, but I'm pretty sure maybe there is one that just stuck with you and maybe you're still dealing with it today. The biggest challenge still remains. So it's, it's not something that changes over time. The problem is that we as human beings are very, very both subjective and want to do things for ourselves. And one of the pitfalls for founders is that they think that they are building the product for themselves. Bam. And yeah, and, and they, they get down to the nitty gritty. They define out all the shit that they are not, that's not relevant to the product because they think that it's relevant to them. So they map out everything from start to finish and they, they see themselves being millionaires uh, the product being used by millions of users. Why wouldn't they? I mean, <laughs> yeah, but the thing is that when you start off from the left foot and you start off by saying, I think this, I think that, I think, um, I think something else, you, you end up with building something that is very peculiar to you. So even if you are highly, highly skilled in a subject, so you are an expert in fintech, you want to build a product, of course. You have that background that drives you. So you always know, okay, I, this is where I want to get. And you start defining out things. So I think users will use this this way. I think this will be a huge value for users. And you end up with a huge bucket of assumptions and you don't validate them. You just go with it because you think this is the right thing to do. And then, then you end up uh, with feedback after you launch that, okay, bro, we don't really want to use this. 
because we didn't want something so complex. We didn't want something so niche, for example. So always listen to your users and talk to your users as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Having ideas, having assumptions is fantastic. But don't start with the what. Start with the why. Why are you building this? Yeah, I can fully resonate with you, especially since I think we're on the same battlefield, mm -hmm. uh, more or less. And in theory, everything sounds perfect and just as it should be. But how do you really convince clients that, you, I wouldn't say your approach is correct, but the approach that you just stated is the one that's more suitable for their product? I wouldn't say that it's a struggle because usually clients start off with knowing exactly what they want to build. So the way we try to direct them in the right uh, in the right direction is mm, talking to their users. So something as simple, okay, who is your target user? We map out uh, the target users and we define those categories to whom we start talking. So we start talking to those users and we base the decisions on data. And it's not about proving the client wrong. It's, it's also about proving ourselves wrong and setting the foundation right to the products that we want to build. Yeah, I know. Uh, well, I was just thinking that working in sales myself, I think not once I heard the clients telling me, Andrea, you're asking me to tell you what I don't like about my baby. And I get this line every single time, almost every single time. I ask them, hey, your product is cluttered in features, let's cut something out. The learning curve of your users within the application is going to be horrendous. Let's try to simplify it. And I feel like this is the same challenge and the same battle that we have to carry on and on. And it's funny because there, there are a lot of statistics on the internet and I, I'm not even sure what the number is anymore, but I think it's 75% of the startups actually fail because they're building products that no one really wants. Um, but how do you make sure that you get the client in that place where he gives up on his baby? I wouldn't really say ego, but it's <laughs> the baby that's so shiny and so perfect and so nice and it should be as it is imagined. I think it's, it's not pretty much related to um, going to, towards something that it is ideal. We're, we're not really looking for perfection. You build and you put in the hard work to get towards perfection. So you won't build the perfect product from the get-go. And talking to them and not, not necessarily making them realize because uh, the way that I am involved in projects, it, it's never uh, a client and contractor relationship. So it's a relationship where we both work together at the same goal. And this is the most important thing to, to acknowledge on both sides, that building great products is done iteratively and you don't build a perfect product from the get-go. And this is, this is something else which, which comes up quite often. So uh, I call it the shoe shopping effect. But, <laughs> but, but in this scenario, it falls on, on the feature. So when it comes down to building products, so as you mentioned, the stats that 75% of startups... Might be 90, but we don't yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. This is, so even more fail. And the primary reason that they fail is that they don't fail fast enough. And, and this is a huge problem because 
they put in so much time, so much effort, so much money, and then they realize, okay, what happened? Three years have passed and we still haven't launched the product. So what, what can be done in this scenario? Focus on the basics. Go back to the basics. What is the minimum that you can build that will satisfy your users' needs? Build, build more. You're wasting energy and effort and money. Build less and no one will want to use your app or platform. So it's very, very important to uh, put your product on the market and start talking to your users. Start listening to your users. You can have the best design team, the best development team, the best marketing team. If you don't listen to your users, you're going to fail. I also think that, and I'm just connecting this with what you said before, I think it's really hard to launch a product that consists of its core if you don't start with the why and you start with the what. Absolutely. Because I've seen cases in which, and I've been involved in building several digital products, I've seen a lot of cases in which people start building products by creating puzzles out of different other digital products. And I think this is a no-go approach. Um, so, yeah. Um, which brings me to my next question, actually. Um, I know you have been working on several huge products in the past years. Uh, you just mentioned that. Um, what do you think makes people stick to apps and how do you really build an app that is not only desired by users, but also makes them come back again and again and again? Because at the end of the day, I think every founder's success story drills down to users and more than that, to users coming back and actually having their lives depend on the digital product that they're using. It is very important for the product to satisfy a primary need and other secondary needs. And making a product that feels natural for users to use mm, is the most important part. So again, let's make a comparison. Back in the days, they were building products and no one cared about the users. Mm, for example, you would buy an accounting software, they would throw in a 500-page manual, good luck learning our product. Once you've learned it, good. If a new person comes, start learning it. Now, if you talk to your users and you listen to users, you can build products that are extremely simple to onboard. And this lies at the, the basic business foundation as well. How are you going to sell your product if you tell the company or the users you want to buy it that, hey, you're going to need a 30-day time to learn our product? No, so users want to get started with a product and they want to have that feeling of liberty when they're using that product. They want to feel that feeling that, okay, this is really helping me in my job. And one of the things that we can really work on through design is helping users be focused on what's important for them rather than on all those shitty repetitive tasks that they keep on doing and it's wasting their time and they become frustrated. Tom, um, I know you've been pretty involved in the sales process at Rebeldot and you have interacted with a lot of founders looking to build digital products in a vast, vast array of industries. I'm really curious, what advice would you give um, tech founders looking to start building um, digital products? Don't start with the features. 
Why? <laughs> <laughs> Again, we're going we're going back to the user. So start with focusing on real life scenarios in which your users are going to use your product. And that will go on into defining what features they need. So mapping out scenarios um, is the best exercise that I could recommend to any founder. You map out the scenario, you understand the context in which your user is going to interact with your product. So mapping out the scenario doesn't only help us understand the user from a workflow perspective, it helps us understand their feelings, how they are feeling, uh, what they want to feel when they're interacting with your, with your app or with your platform. So uh, it all comes down to what can you offer to your users? So the features are the ones who make all of this happen. So if we take huge products, if we take, for example, an app as simple as Google Photos, what does Google Photos do? It allows you to view your photos. Um, well, not really, because it sorts your photos. It allows you to search after location and identify photos. It brings memories. So there are lots and lots of features who are, which are working together in the background and working for you and you don't even realize that it feel, when you when you pick up your phone it feels so natural oh look it's a memory from last year when we were in when we were in santorini how cool is that you mentioned um understanding users and this just clicked with my uh, with empathy uh, which is something that i value a lot in in our jobs at as creatives um, and I, I was just wondering, I know that your experience is pretty much about working with different founders on a lot of different digital products, whereas there are designers that f spend ages on the same product. And it's pretty straightforward f uh, to me why, as a designer working seven years on a product, you get to the, that understanding of knowing what the users want and being able to understand their needs, imagining yourself in the real life scenarios in which they are. How do you juggle between a lot of products and how do you make sure that you're still able to understand? Because I'm, I'm thinking today you might be working on a fintech application and the next day you're working on a project management app that's designed for a totally different user. How do you make sure that you're still able and capable to understand the user need? Always got to keep the eyes on the ball. So <laughs> even if I'm shuffling between projects, um, it's always important to have a track record of what you're working on and why you are doing something. So for this, um, I always tell people uh, in a product designer's life, designing is the smallest aspect of our work. So documenting things, understanding things, and making sure that what we are building is stacked up one another and leads to that final product where we want what we want to reach is the most important part of it all. Uh, how I feel, uh, working on every product feels like a race. And I'm not saying this from a bad perspective. I'm saying this from a standpoint that when you switch your uh, when you switch your mindset, you need to be laser focused on what you are doing. So the other projects don't exist. You are focused on what you are doing, and you are living in the present. So always keep the eyes on the ball 
and always be as focused as possible. And when it comes down to finding solutions, most of the solutions come, uh, especially when you work in setting the correct ground rules for it. So when you have the base to have uh, something to continuously improve, build on, and uh, deliver, um, that's when the magic happens. Because you have things validated. We go through iterations. We always start from why we are building something. We define what we want to build. We build it. We test it. We reassess it. And we go round and round and round in loops until we make sure that that specific part of the product is what is what the users want and will highly benefit both the business and both the users from a goals perspective. I have another question, and this is more on the learning and growing as a professional because we slightly touched down on this right now. How do you learn and grow in your knowledge and expertise? I know that you manage and lead design teams and you also work on a few projects and you're a new dad recently. How do you stay on top of your game? Always be curious. So one thing that I always recommend is um, I spend a lot of my free time reading and I read lots of things that are unrelated to design. Lots and lots of things that... Uh, at first glance, might might seem so far fresh from design that you're thinking, okay, what is this going to help me with? And here, the best example I can give is the Hans Zimmer masterclass. So, why why would I be watching a masterclass of someone who writes music? Uh, and I ask you, why not? I think the most important lesson that I learned from Hans Zimmer is that. Um, Every song written is like a story. And it starts off with you gradually putting the user within that story and raising emotions within that user. So song gives, gives us the possibility of uh, triggering different emotions in users, making them feel good, making them feel bad. The, the same thing goes with design as well. So when you start using a product, you're essentially entering a story and you become the main actor of that story. We just need to create the circumstances for you to feel as natural and as comfortable as possible and for it to give you the satisfaction that you need so you're going to continuously keep on coming back and using it more and bringing value to your life. I almost, I almost wanted to start taking notes on this. <laughs> Great story. And this brought me to the fact that you're actually, you, you talk a lot about reading other things than design and um, interconnecting different elements of life and in creating a capacity to understand your discipline and the needs of the people around you. And you're actually doing this at Rebel Dot as well because you're involved in a vast array of disciplines, I would say, and departments. Um, which brings me to my next question of what has helped you most in your journey as a professional and what is helping you the most today? And please don't say curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the biggest thing that helped me the most is the thing that didn't help me the most. Uh, <laughs> um, I speak what I think. 
So I strongly believe that uh, having an opinion on something and sharing it, even when no one agrees with you, is beneficial both for you as an individual and both for the team. Of course, I might see something that is completely invalid, but I would rather say what I'm thinking than go home and starting, oh, I should have said that. And from, from this perspective, it's, it's extremely interesting to see how people react. So one of, one of the bases of how people react is usually they are surprised. So where did that come from? <laughs> I don't know. I, I just felt like saying this. So uh, I generally apply this in every aspect of, of life. So I speak my mind. And uh, it's very important for me because besides not building up tension within, I get to say exactly how I feel about things. And this pretty much helps me bring um, linearity into clutter, I think. I love what I hear, especially because ever since I joined Rebel Dot, you have been my mentor on radical honesty and on being authentic. Um, and it actually really helped. You have no idea how, how much you wanted to get rid of the feedback sandwich. And I think it's doing a lot of harm um, in organizations today. And it's a pity that people to this day still don't understand that authenticity, vulnerability, radical honesty are actually strong pillars on which you can build something that's that's solid. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the most imp- the most important aspect is that feeling strong is okay. Feeling vulnerable is, is okay. So it's just part of human nature. It's up to you whether you're going to suppress it or you're going to show it. Well, I I prefer to show it. <laughs> So what's your take on work-life inclusion, integration, balance? How do you see this? How do you see work integrating into life? Mm, it, it really depends whether you want me to answer this question reference to pre-pandemic or current pandemic situation. Well, let's do both. Start with the pre-pandemic. I think in, in the pre-pandemic scenario... Um, from a work-life balance perspective, we had a much greater separation. We had the specific uh, job that went from nine to five or however you want to have it because we have that flexibility. Uh, but in, in the same time, I think that it pretty much drove us further from all the things that fall in between. Uh, in the current pandemic category, uh, one of the things that people are struggling with is separating work from life. And this is given to the scenario of multiple lockdowns and you being in the small and confined space. Uh, from this perspective, I think that um, if there's one thing that the pandemic has taught us, besides the fact that we are stronger than we think, is that we can make our own schedule. Work is life. And life is work. Life is work. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then it, it essentially... Um, I can resonate more with this because work is part of life. Correct. Work is part of life. And once we start treating it as something natural, um, I think we're going to have a huge epiphany of, of the fact that we don't need that separation. Okay. I, I only meet my colleagues at work. No, why not meet up randomly? Why not do something on the spot? 
Yeah, I recently um, listened to a podcast um, by Adam Grant. Maybe mm -hmm. you're familiar with him. And this is actually the reason why I asked this question. He was saying something that pretty much stuck with me. And it was about how people perform better and feel more confident and wor at work when they are able to bring their home life at work and when they do not feel constrained of having to separate the two environments and for a long period of time I struggled with trying to create work-life balance and having work time and play time and it, it, it just didn't work for me and I thought okay I might be broken or something something's not wrong Until I realized, hey, actually, just as you said, work can be part of life and should be part of life. And especially if you're really passionate about what you do, I think it's pretty, I wouldn't say inconvenient, but impossible to separate the two. Some of the best ideas that I got, I think, came while I was cooking and showering. So never under, never underestimate the power of a really good shower. <laughs> Absolutely. Um Mm, I, I strongly believe that if you're having fun while you're working... And you're it, good at that. <laughs> it, 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 it's going to be a hell of a fun ride. But if you only take work as the place where you go and you put in the eight hours and then you go home and cash your paycheck, then, yeah, it's not going to be a fun ride for you. So work should be fun because why are we doing this? We're doing this for a reason. Uh, I become a designer for a reason. I become a designer because I intend to do the best that I can in finding solutions and essentially providing something that people can benefit from. And why should I be so stiff while I'm doing it? So you can have fun. So it's it's all about the way that you see things. In some podcasts, they were saying that uh, it's impossible to make... Uh, to make work fun. No, no, it's not. It, it's, it's impossible only if you think so. So if, if there is an exercise that any of the listeners can do, start thinking about how many cool people you've met at your workplace. Start thinking about uh, how good you feel at your workplace when uh, you start chatting with someone. So, and when I'm referring to workplace, it refers to work from home as well. Uh, so, It's, it's a mix of emotions, and it all comes down to feeling good about what you're doing. And how do you make sure that you stay connected with the people at work in, in this, I wouldn't say unprecedented times, because we've seen this a lot on <laughs> social media, but it's, especially for us, it's a new context. I mean, we've now been working from home for one year, but I've struggled with connecting with our teams, and especially... I, I think something that I realized is that you cut down on chit-chat and on small talks. And this harms um, teamwork a lot. So how do, you, how do you do it? It doesn't have to be a pattern. So something as easy as writing to a colleague, yo, what's up? It's enough of a conversation starter. And you can have a quick call. You can write, you can chat while you're doing work and, and it feels good. It feels good because you have someone who you've connected with and you have someone uh, who you can talk to. So 
even of course we don't have the same feeling as the kitchen small talks yeah. th- that we had at the office but um why not do our best in being just as spontaneous as walking in a kitchen and finding some people there and asking them hey what are you guys doing what are you talking about I love how this discussion is going in a lot of different places. Um, And there is another thing I've been wanting to touch down on, and it's the future of products. How do you see the future of products? I see the future of products bright because uh, more and more companies uh, will be focusing on delivering solutions and building products that bring value to their users rather than as we started our podcast, uh, building products just for the heck of it. And and we see this trend. We see this trend in huge companies like SAP, Salesforce, and, and so on. They are completely revamping the old systems and they they are engaging in a lot of research in order to make sure that what they will build building will be what the users need to make their lives even better. And do you think that building what users want and creating user-centric product, user-centric products, it is what helps companies stay competitive and what gives them a competitive edge? Because it's 2021 and everyone is building digital products. There is a digital products for everything. How do you remain competitive? How do you make your products stand out from the crowd? You remain competitive by not being conservative by not staying in the, in the same position. So, um, of course, there is, a pro- there is a product for everything. But the question is, how does one product satisfy your needs in the way that you expect it to do? Now I'd really want to know if you have some companies on the top of your mind right now that you think are nailing product design. And if so, why? Google, you, you, over the years, you have a single search bar, which gives you the answers that you need. It's simple as that. <laughs> so um, as I previously said, we don't need to focus on features. We need to focus on our users and on the scenarios that they are using it. We can build thousands of features that work in the background to make this happen for the users. And what it all comes down to is feeling things as natural as possible. And, and this is why you, you want to search for something. You say, let me Google it. You, you don't even think it comes so naturally. You open up your phone. Okay, let, let's Google this. Oh, okay, I have the best result. And this is all about what great products do. They feel so natural that you don't even think twice in using it. I know that that is the tool I need to find information in Google's case. I love how in this entire product design story, being simple remains the most difficult thing to do. Always, always, always. Because uh, being simple is difficult to achieve because uh, you are not displaying a cluster of data to, to your user. They are seeing something as simple as a search bar. And what they want is finding their favorite sushi restaurant. Yeah. And I love the entire simplicity uh, concept. And I think 
it plays a huge part in even in marketing i i remember reading something i'm not sure mark, mark twain said it but okay i hope no one's gonna hate me for this um <laughs> he said i didn't have enough time so i'm sending you a long letter instead of a short one and a lot of times we think that what's complex is actually useful and what's complicated is good yeah but it's not it's, it's not. not effective and even in copywriting for example I've recently had a short discussion with um, our team and we were chatting around how we want readers to burn as less calories as possible for them to actually be able to process the information that we're, we're trying to deliver to them. And if they have to think twice about what we're saying, it means that the message is a failure pretty much because you don't want people to spend a lot of energy to try to understand what you want them to do. Exactly. And, and, and all people want, and this refers to our clients as well, they want to feel that they are talking, that you are talking to them just as the two of us are talking here. So one of the mistakes that I've seen that designers make is that they go very, very technical in their discussions and the clients are like, okay, what is this guy saying? And they are nodding and you end that one hour meeting and they don't understand what you said. They didn't give you the answers that you need instead of simplifying things, doing something as simple as asking, okay, why are we doing this? Why do you say this? And providing simple answers that deep down are complicated, but you simplify it down for, uh, for the people you are talking to, to understand and to be able to uh, see what your vision is. It, it's all fun to to use huge buzzwords and use technical talk and feel good that you can do that, but it doesn't really provide any gain. And especially for us as designers, uh, it's extremely important that we have clarity in our discussions. And it's extremely important that we speak as simple as possible because uh, one of the biggest issues that leads to a failure of a product is miscommunication. I feel you. And I think we're all winning <laughs> if we understand that we're working with humans, we're building for humans, and we're always, always, even if you're selling, you're selling to humans. And this is, there is something Chris Voss um, says in one of his books, and it's about sounding complicated. As soon as you sound complicated in your pitch, it means something's off. You're either not trusting your product or you're not confident in the solution that you're delivering to the market, but something, something has to be off. Um, so yeah, simple life makes everything better. If if this is the only takeaway that people get from this podcast, I'm happy. Yeah. And <laughs> Stay me curious too. and yeah. live, live a simple life. <laughs> yeah. And focus on the things that matter. Yeah. I have one last question for you, and I know this is a pretty cliche question, but I'm pretty sure people would want to know. And what am I doing in five years? Yeah, what are you doing <laughs> in five years? This was actually not the question, but since you mentioned gone, what are your plans for the next years? Drinking mojitos on a beach <laughs> <laughs> while watching Star Wars. Yeah, I love that we're having fun. That's also my plan. Um, back to the question, what advice 
would you actually give people wanting to start doing design, whether it's UX or UI? I'm referring to product design. The best advice that I can give them is um, go with the flow. Go with the flow. It, it's all about the journey. It's all about having fun. And it's all about celebrating the small victories. So it's all fun in imagining yourself working on a huge product in five years, 10 years time, being a lead there uh, and missing out on all the fun that you can have while you're getting there. And I think that building meaningful connections and working with amazing people and learning from them is the best part of the journey. I know I said I only have one question, but actually, I'm not promising anything. I hope this will actually be the last question. Um, has the current pandemic changed the way people look at digital products and technology? Absolutely. So people have much higher expectations than they had before the pandemic. And this is mostly because of the fact that with the lockdowns in lots of states and lots of countries, People interact with suppliers, government, and pretty much sort out things that they did in person uh, from home. So based on this, what people want is for the products to evolve based on their needs and to offer them the convenience that they need. And let's not forget, the biggest uh, aspect of our lives and the most important asset of our lives is time. You don't want to waste time on things that are not important to you. You want to submit a form. Okay, submit that form, get it done and move on with your life. You want to feel things working in your behalf. And, and this is where the whole trigger com comes from. You want to achieve something. And this is what lies at the base of UX design as well. So we always start from a need and create the motivation needed for the users in order to achieve a goal. Okay, so I've been thinking about how the current context plays technology under a different spotlight because we have turned to technology to solve a lot of issues for us. We are now dependent on technology to help us connect with our dear ones. We're dependent on technology to switch light bulbs and, I don't know, chores, business, everything. It's... It's technology related and this has skyrocketed people's confidence in technology and they, are, they trust it more. They trust, they trust technology more when it comes to um, helping them accomplish goals, which I think is great. Technology will become a bigger and bigger part of our lives. So, and the good part is that we can benefit so, so much from it. It's very, very convenient as long as you use apps and products that work in your benefit rather than using products to essentially drain your energy. Yeah. And all you end up is swiping up, swiping up, swiping up and uh, wasting time on things that you think that are important to you, but they're actually not, rather than focusing on your loved ones and making connections. Because technology should enhance our lives rather than take away our time. And this will take me back to what I previously said. Time is our most important asset because sooner or later we're going to realize the fact that, oh shit, five years have gone by and all I did was swipe through Facebook all day. 
Yeah, and I love how this takes us back to building products that integrate and blend into our day-to-day lives. You don't want them to feel like they're extras. You want them to feel that they are part of your routines. Exactly. Great, Tom. Thanks for the conversation today. Thank you for having me. I loved it. Now we have to go back to work. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Time for mojitos at work. Yes, let's do that.